Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. After these first two services, do you think that maybe we hired the wrong DeFazio? You're visiting the church today. My name's Mark. I'm mean, and I'm one of the ministers here. We're really glad you're with us today. Uh, we are, as Beth said a little bit earlier, we are in a, in a place where we're studying through one of the most destructive letters written to mankind, what we call the book of Romans. We talked about it last week. It's destructive because it blows away our sense of what religion should do And it awakens us to what God actually asks of us and wants for us. So last week, if you were with us, we looked at Romans chapter 7 and we went into the first 13 verses of chapter 8. And what we realized was Paul was presenting a scene in his dialogue where he was showing us what happens to us when we try to live by our own power instead of accepting what Jesus did for us. And then he ends that section, the first 13 verses of Romans 8, he breaks into that God has given us the power we need to overcome ourselves and our sin. And that's what we're going to break off into today. And I'm going to tell you where I'm taking you. When we read verses 14 through 39 of Romans 8, what we will understand is simply that God has given us everything we need to be able to become what he's called us to become. So you can leave here today knowing that you lack nothing if you have Christ to do and go through this world and what it offers you. You have all the power you need through God's Holy Spirit. That's where I'm taking you today, and this is what we're going to celebrate. I'd like to begin by just giving you four things about the Spirit of God and what it avails to us if we open ourselves to Him. The first is this. The Spirit of God recreates lost relationships. Now, this should have value to us, although if you begin thinking, well, I've been a believer for a long time, I want you to suspend that for a moment and understand, have you acted like one? And acting like a believer begins with understanding our relationship with God. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. One of the most beautiful promises in all of Scripture. Paul will also use this terminology in Ephesians, where he says, and listen carefully, that in the Jewish culture, the firstborn son received two-thirds of all of his father's possessions. And God just said that we are going to receive what Jesus receives as the firstborn. And that's good news. And so it's not talking about monetary wealth. We're talking about the fact that God sees us equal to his own son. He values us as if we were the firstborn. And he desires to share that with us. Paul is beginning to say that this relationship that we threw in the trash when we told God to leave us alone, when we told God, I know how to live my life, I'm going to do it my way, that relationship that we tossed away, God has brought it back to us through his spirit and he offers it to us again. Would you like to return to the relationship you broke? And the minute I say that, many of us stop and say, man, I'd like to have that offer in my marriage. 
I'd like to have that offer with my children. I'd like to have it with my parents. I'd like to have it with my former best friend. We're all desiring for these relationships that are shattered by selfish sin. We're all desired for them to be restored. And Paul goes on. Now remember what we learned. In chapters 1 and 2, we realized that we were shattered by our sin and our relationship with God was, was taken away. We gave it away. That's a better way to phrase it. Then in chapter 5, it's repaired or justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and our faith in that. Chapter 6, we are set free from our slavery to sin by his resurrection. And then in chapter 7, if we try to live by our own power, we're going to live a desperate existence. It's powerless. But if we walk in the Spirit, we receive life. Look at verse 14. Paul says that we go from sinners to sons. Verse 15, we go from fearful to fathered. 16, we go from uncertainty to peace. And verse 17, we are alienated, but then we're treasured. Dr. Jack Cottrell, who was my professor, when I took the book of Romans in college, he said these words, the spirit of God leads us by not overriding our wills or dragging us or driving us along. Rather, the Holy Spirit leads us with the prodding of our conscience, an influence upon our heart, an empowerment of our will to do what the scriptures of God call us to do. And I agree. Let me put it simply this way. There's something about knowing you belong at home that matters. I love coming in our driveway and seeing a group of children playing. This is the neighborhood I grew up in as a kid. I had three brothers, and we played, and all the neighborhood boys came to our house. We had a cornfield next to us, so we hit baseballs, and you basically got a double, triple, or homer based on how far and how many rows of corn it went. Yes, I grew up in Indiana. And I love coming home and seeing the boys playing in our front yard. What I also love is we have a refrigerator in our garage that's full of, uh, Heather keeps it stocked, with pop and water and Gatorade and all that. And I love going in there and seeing the boys. There'll be four or five empty Gatorade containers around and they're all got their shirts off and they're having fun and I love it. Pull in the driveway and get in the garage and every now and then something happens. I'll go in the garage and there'll be a little boy reaching into my refrigerator and he sees daddy's home. And if it's Braden, he just pops one open and starts talking to me. But the other kids freeze. They don't know what to do. In their mind, they're saying this. Well, I take it when he's not here, but I don't know if I can take it when he's here. So basically, they're convicted of thievery. <laughs> and I love watching them, and they'll be, uh, sh- uh, and I'll go, yeah, help yourself. You, you can have anything in there. And they kind of look at you. I go, just put a dollar on top. <laughs> some do, some don't. But you see, Braden never runs in the house and says, Mom, can I have a Gatorade? Braden knows that he belongs in that home. That refrigerator's his. Anything in there, he has permission to help himself to within reason. You can't have nine Gatorades in an hour. But if he's thirsty, get something to drink. And we tell the neighborhood boys, help yourself. That's in there for you. Do you understand the difference between believing you belong in the home and wondering if you're welcome at all? Church, listen to me right now. The Spirit of God is upon you to let you know when you're with God, you're home. And Paul just said, everything he has is available to you, and it always has been, if we trust. It's one of the first blessings. The second blessing of the Holy Spirit found in Romans 8 is that the Spirit of God encourages our faith when life is hard. And this is difficult. I'm going to spend a majority of our time today, so if you think it's disproportionate, you're right, it is. Because we live in a world where people think that following Jesus means that he's going to fix everything in your life and you're going to live happily ever after. And I believe we're going to live happily ever after, but I believe it's going to be hard to live happily ever after. It's not going to be convenient. It's not going to be easy. No matter what preachers around the country say, When you read your Bible, I'll quote Isaac Shade. He said this in the back room. Every book of the Bible has a passage on suffering in it. Why are we so slow to believe 
that life is going to remain hard even as believers. Paul says in verse 17, And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation awaits an eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I'm going to explain this as as quickly as I can. To be honest with you, a smart preacher would have spent an entire sermon on this section alone. You don't have one of those. So I'm going to summarize it and leave it to the smart guy, Michael, to teach it on Wednesday nights so you can go deeper into that passage in a more slow-measured way. But here's what we understand. There's a spectacular and startling promise made in this passage. The spectacular in verse 17 is that as children of God, we will receive from God everything that he's going to give Jesus for his obedience. That's good news, amen? Amen. And the startling part is that we will suffer to enjoy it. And at this point in time, many of us could stop right now and say, if this is what I get for trusting Jesus, I'm out. And you have that option. If you can't trust that Jesus is good and keeps every one of his promises, then when suffering comes, most of us will get mad at God and walk. Because that's not what we signed up for. And I have to ask you, then whoever sold you Christianity without hardship did not sell you Christianity. And I don't, I'm not trying to belittle other preachers. There have been moments in my life, if I could go back and erase sermons, <clears throat> 90% of mine I would. Because as I've learned the scriptures, I've learned that I've taught some things that were more American than they were biblical. So we live in a culture where we have to be real honest with one another, and I want us to do that. You see, Paul never shied away from this. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no may in there. And 1 Peter, Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter 4. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation at the end of your suffering. But let's talk about what suffering is, and I'm just going to be brief with this, and we'll develop this more. We're going to have a series that's coming up in May, and we're going to talk about suffering. And I've asked a friend of mine, Chad Ragsdale, to come specifically on that day. He's got a great take on it, and he just can be more concise and specific than I can with the text. But when you talk about suffering, please understand this. Suffering is not you got caught in a traffic jam. Suffering is not that it's hot. Suffering is not that there's not enough food in your house that you like. Suffering, the way Paul uses it, is when you take a stand for Christ and pay a price for it. It's when standing up for what's true is mocked and made fun of, and it costs you a job, and it costs you friends, and it costs you something. Beth was so right in her offertory comments that to bring a sacrifice to God has to be a sacrifice for it to be from your heart. So suffering is not inconvenience. We live in a world that's broken. You're going to notice terms, as Paul writes in Romans 8, futility, agony, suffering, groanings. It's a hard life. It's a hard world. This world is broken. So suffering is when we take a stand for Christ and we trust that God is good and he keeps all of his promises and that will separate us from the world. The world wants to be left alone to do what it chooses to do and should you say to them that this is not what God told you to do, then you can pay a price for that. 
It's happening all over. Now, in America, the price is not here on us yet. But I can tell you, I can go into parts of the world and show you people that today will have to choose whether they live or die based on whether or not they want to stand up for Christ. It's a real deal. And the church is suffering and being persecuted for their faith. So why does suffering precede the moment we live our lives for? Dr. Timothy Keller, who says it a lot better than I could, said it this way. I'm paraphrasing. So there's two reasons that our suffering is necessary for us. First of all, it knocks away our self-reliance. It reminds us who God really is and who isn't God. Are you with me? When we suffer, guess who's not in control? Me. And it causes my reliance on my own abilities to be exposed as a fraud. Secondly, it demands an allegiance to something. It's an, it will demand an allegiance to comfort or it will demand an allegiance to Christ. And so there is a necessity of suffering in all of our lives. You see, suffering is one of the clearest moments of being his disciple. Where were all of his disciples on the night he was suffering? All gone. All protecting their own kingdom instead of his. All ran away and hid. But following the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit upon them, when you read the book of Acts, what happened to those same disciples? They suffered for the kingdom of heaven. So the question of suffering comes down to this. Will you allow your kingdom to be torn down so the kingdom of Christ could be built up? That's what suffering answers. Will I allow my kingdom to be torn apart so that his kingdom can be established? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. This verse is heavy, but what Paul is saying here is that the earth has struggled since sin entered into it. The earth became broken, began to fall apart. We can see that all around us. Earthquakes, tornadoes, tidal waves, things such as these, droughts, famines. And we see this going on. And Paul says that God didn't desire that, but God has used those things. He subjected the earth to futility to capture our attention because he promises us something greater. Verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I don't know if your theology is open to this. Mine is. That when I read in Revelation that he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, I believe there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I believe we're going to serve on that earth willingly, just like they did in the Garden of Eden. You see, there was work in the Garden of Eden before the punishment came. Have you ever noticed that? They did work. They woke up every day desiring to till the garden and to work the land and to spend time with the animals. They did what God had created in a perfect world. Now, for many of us, work is how we prove ourselves or it's, it's something we have to do to pay the bills and feed the family and I want you to know when God establishes this new thing, I believe he's telling us that all the struggles we have with things like work are going to be set straight. And we're going to work and worship every day, and it's going to be a privilege, not a duty, a privilege. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The earth is waiting. I know this is a silly illustration, but it's me. You ever had a puppy? You ever had a dog in your house? They're awesome. 
Do you know why? Because you can run out and get the mail and the dog will act like you've been gone 10 years. <laughs> that dog will be on the porch. It will dance. It will uncontrollably urinate. That's what I love about dogs. In our house, we call them happy sprinkles. They run around in circles and there's like, look how much he loves me. And if I may, as weird as this is going to be, Paul says the earth is waiting for its master to return with great joy, even though while they wait, it's hard. And if the earth knows when its master comes home, how much more will we that are made in his image celebrate? And how much can we look at the suffering we're asked to go through and realize this? He's coming back. I wish he came now. It's hard right now. I'm under incredible pressure right now. But he is coming back. And when he comes back, everything will be made right. And the Holy Spirit speaks to you if you will listen every day saying, it's worth it. Even suffering. So the Holy Spirit tells us we're home with God our Father. And the Holy Spirit tells us what to do when times are hard. Thirdly, the Spirit of God will supply all our faith needs to persevere. It will give us everything we need to stand strong. But I need to say this in the very beginning. It harkens back to Romans 7. If you're trying to live your Christianity by trying harder, you will not make it. If you're going to live your Christian existence with a non-spiritual power, you will not make it. It's only by his spirit that we overcome, not by our will or our might. Verse 26. Likewise, I love this. He says, and another thing the spirit does. The spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we, for as we ought But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you don't know what to say, when you don't know what to think, when you don't know what to do, the Spirit of God is speaking from that depth of desperation back to the Father who listens and responds. God is not a God sitting on a throne who is irritated by our inquiries. He's not inconvenienced by our passion. There's a difference. When one of my sons is saying, dad, 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 I don't want to hear. But there are moments when I can tell by the tone of their voice that they need my attention right now. And I'll tell you the truth. Nobody in the world will be more important to me than them. And the Spirit speaks to our Father in those moments that we don't even know what to say. And God is not inconvenienced by that. His Spirit unites and He hears us. And He responds to us. In our weakness, He is what? Strong. And He demonstrates His power. Listen to what we've learned through the book of Romans. That this Spirit that God gave us so we don't live by our own power, this Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. No longer does the law judge us. The Spirit helps us fulfill the just requirements of the law in of ourselves, our response to it. The Spirit gives us life and peace. The Spirit will raise you from the dead. The Spirit has put to death, or helps you put to death the deeds of the body and the mind. The Spirit calls us and lets us know we are sons and daughters of God and we're at home. And the Holy Spirit bears witness in us that the suffering for the kingdom of heaven is worth it. And the Spirit is a foretaste and guarantee of our final redemption. If you don't know what I just did, I just walked us through the eight chapters of Romans. All of this comes by the Spirit of God. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, I must leave so he can come? Notice he didn't say it. The Holy Spirit is not an incantation. It's not an essence. It's a person. 
that hovered over the face of the earth in creation and hovers over every one of us sealed in the blood of Christ. It's his promise. You see, in our weakness, and God knew we'd be weak, that's why he didn't leave us on our own. That's why he didn't say, now try harder. I've often thought that for many of us, especially in America, we believe like God put a million dollars in our bank account and we call that grace, but we also hear him say, don't ask me for another dime. And I want you to know that's not grace. That's works. Grace is, I'll have everything you need. Come to me and I'll help you. Humble yourself to me. That's why Romans 8.28, when stripped of its context, has less power than left exactly where it is. Because in light of all of this, Paul says, and we know, Spirit's conviction, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When we live by the power of the Spirit available to us in Romans 8, 1 through 13, then the promise of the Spirit in verses 14 through 39 are all ours. And we know that God, we know that God is good. And we know that God keeps his promises. And even when life is hard, we know that God has gotten us through it. Can you think in your heart and mind right now a moment that you didn't think you could make it through and you realize it was God who got you through that moment? Because you surrender. You surrender to something greater than yourself. You see, God is the one working. But Paul is not saying that all things are good. Paul did not say that everything that happens to you is good. It just means that God can use whatever you go through to redeem you, to prove himself to you, and to prove your love for him to others. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice who's doing the work. This whole concept, Dr. Cottrell, who taught me, says, it is biblical to say that God predestines the end, but not the means. He predestines all believers to heaven, but he does not predestine anyone to become a believer. But those who will place their faith in Christ, God begins a work in them, from justifying them from their sin, to sanctifying them for greater purpose, to glorifying in their lives his mercy, his love, and his goodness. God has a plan, and if we submit to it, it works. So it establishes our relationship with him, we're home. It encourages us to go through suffering because it's worth it. And it supplies all of our faith needs to persevere because he is the one who will work and leads me to the conclusion. Number four, the spirit of God brings his strength to all things. Now, I was listening to Michael teach on Wednesday night through a passage earlier in Romans. And um, what was fascinating to me was he said, and this is the moment where you can tell that Paul's spitting in the audience, right? He's getting real passionate. He's pounding the pulpit. He's going for it. Michael's wrong. This is that passage. No, actually, there's about five different times in Romans that you can see Paul get his preacher on, and he's going for it. This is the hinge in the book. This is the moment that Paul wants to show us everything we have in Christ, and then he sends us forward, offering us hope and responsibility and obedient faith going forward. It's a beautiful transition. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Let's pause. Everything we've talked about, everything we've been meditating and thinking on for the last eight weeks, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? 
Wow. It takes a lifetime to consider this, but only a moment to truthfully answer. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's a great question. If God is able to save you from your sins, what makes us think he's incompetent when life gets rough? What makes us think he's going to abandon us? He says he did not spare, but delivered over. And I was doing a little bit of research. Don't miss the divine love for man in this. That term delivered him over, or the concept is found at least eight times in your Bible. Let me explain where it's found. It says that Judas delivered him over, Mark 3. That Pilate delivered him over, Mark 15. That Herod and the Jewish people delivered him over, Acts 4. That we delivered him over, 1 Corinthians 15, Galatians 1, and several other passages. It even says that Jesus delivered himself over, John 10 and John 19. Delivered him over, delivered him over, delivered him over. But then it says, Paul says, it was God who worked through the deliverings to deliver him over. Here's the truth. God even used our corrupt sin to bring about a greater good by delivering Jesus over to the cross so you and I could live through the resurrection. And I'll tell you this, nothing greater has ever happened. Nothing greater in the history of mankind has ever happened than the moment that our God chose to give his son for us. So the question of the morning is, if he would do that, what are you facing that he would not give his spirit to help you overcome? Addiction? Relationships? Debt? Fear? Shame? So if, if those things are against us and God's for us, what do we have to fear? This is Paul's great celebration. He says, if God is on our side, who can whip us? Nobody. Verse 33. This is where I'm going to start spitting and yelling. Okay, are you ready? Listen to, there's a series of questions and a great response. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's going to say, you're on or you're wrong? <laughs> Nobody. Who is the one who condemns us? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who's going to tell him he's wrong? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can any of those whip God? Boy, I thought in church someone would answer. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, the suffering. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We don't sneak by the tape and win at a photo finish. We're going to walk through the tape and it's going to be no contest. There is nothing that can come upon us that God is not bigger than church. And the spirit of God affirms that. He says, who can be against us? No one. Who will bring any charge? No one. Who will condemn us? No one. Who can separate us? No one or nothing. The promise of the Spirit in our life is when God has sealed you in salvation, you are a closed deal. And the only thing that walks away is when we walk away. Verse 38, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, nothing 
There is nothing to fear if you're in Christ. What's the worst thing that can happen? You die for the cause of Christ and live forever. So, you lose relationships, you lose power, you lose prestige, things are said about you that are not true, and Paul says, can any of those things diminish your hope that God is bigger, that God is stronger, that God is able? I don't know what you're going through today, but for some of you, you need to hear Romans 8 spoken. You're scared. You're scared about what could happen. You're, you're, you're holding up in this power. I, I don't know if I can protect myself. Give it to the, your Lord and watch him work. Trust him that he can work good in all things. Know that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, God said, I've been after you from the creation of all time. You're the most valuable thing I've ever created. And I will protect you, and I will love you, and I will rescue you. But you have to trust me. You have to give yourself to me so I can do the work I intend to do. Then nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God but our own lack of faith. So we trust. So we submit. So we ask the Holy Spirit of God to come into this place. If you're a believer, that's a prayer you should pray every morning. God, may my kingdom come down so yours can go up. And if you're not a believer, I'd love to have a conversation with you because God's promised you more than just not getting in trouble. God's given you the power to live your life for the glory of his name. And that's why we're here today, to celebrate who God is and what that means to each of us. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.